Support for today's show comes from Squarespace. Do you need a portfolio to showcase your work? A store to sell your products and services? Just like a fun landing spot for... I don't know, your blog, whatever your idea is, Squarespace gives you everything you need to make your next move into a reality. They have beautifully designed templates, customizable features, 24-7 support. It's all simple and intuitive to build your own website. You can start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter offer code CRACKED to get 10% off your first purchase. As you may know, the Cracked Podcast is part of the Earwolf family, and this family is excited to announce the launch of Stitcher premium. It's the new subscription service that brings all your favorite free and premium podcasts together under one roof. If you want to hear more than 250 hours of exclusive original shows, including ad-free archives of all your favorite Earwolf shows and more, such as the Cracked Podcast, be sure to get Stitcher Premium. Also, if you're already a subscriber to Howl, this is great news because now you can just port everything over to Stitcher Premium from your Howl app and the transition couldn't be easier. To learn more about Stitcher Premium, just go to stitcherpremium.com slash cracked, and we'll see you in our archives. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I am the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I am also known as Schmitty the Clam, and I am also, also developing a conspiracy theory about John Williams. Yes, John Williams, the legendary Hollywood movie soundtrack composer. At the top of today's show, I want to present you with the evidence for and against my John Williams authorship conspiracy theory. You know how there's an authorship theory about William Shakespeare, where they say he's not one person, but was actually the code name for like a whole group of people or whatever? And the main argument is how could one guy write all of the great plays in one lifetime? Well, that is my conspiracy theory about John Williams. He is clearly, really, a room full of composers all pretending to be one dude. Because here's the evidence for that theory. You're telling me one guy wrote the scores to all of the following things. Seven Star Wars movies. The iconic 1978 Superman. The Patriot. Memoirs of a Geisha. The first two Home Alone movies. The first three Harry Potter movies. The Olympic Games theme music. The Lost in Space theme music. The intro music for NBC Sunday Night Football and for NBC News. The scores for all but two of Steven Spielberg's 29 movies. From E.T. to Schindler's List to four Indiana Joneses and wrote incidental music for 19 episodes of the TV show Gilligan's Island, you're going to tell me one guy wrote all of that? And, by the way, you're going to tell me that guy's name is John Williams, which is clearly a fake name somebody came up with last minute? Come on. John Williams is the laziest fake name I've ever heard, and John Williams is clearly 10 people. Anyway, that, that's the evidence for my theory. And uh, the evidence against my theory is today's episode. We're talking about secret entertainment heroes. That's the idea. It's people who clocked into work day after day to change the face of movies or music or some other awesome art form that you would think it takes more people to make. It turns out one person can be every stuntman, basically, or every production designer or every casting director all by themselves. And the more these people blow your mind, the more you might think, hey, maybe Bill Shakespeare was simply the Ken Adam or Debbie Evans or John Williams of writing plays about kings or whatever. I don't want to linger on the Shakespeare thing. That's sort of an intro setup. I want to linger on the dopeness of our guests this week. I got to sit down with a secret entertainment hero of all things Cracked, my closest Vana friend, the one and only Michael Swaim. 
We also went sort of meta with a special guest this week. His name is Matt Gorley. You might know him from his previous Cracked Podcast appearance. Fun fact, he was on Cracked Podcast episode number 69. First of all, nice. Second of all, podcasting is not one of those buildings where you can, like, skip the 13th floor or something. This show has an episode 13. It has an episode 69. God willing, we will have an episode 420. I need everybody to be cool about that, all right? Anyway, you might also know Matt Gorley's name from his legendary podcasting output, shows like Super Ego, I Was There Too, Pistol Shrimps Radio, James Bonding, plus countless guest appearances and behind-the-scenes contributions to the entire world of comedy podcasting to this day. I'd argue that he's a secret entertainment hero of the podcasting medium, which is pretty amazing considering this hasn't been a medium for very long, you know? Yet somehow, Matt Gorley's made and done all of it, and we're thrilled to have him back here making and doing our show. Uh, He also has some news at the end of this show, so stick around for that. And speaking of news, we have huge news here at Cracked. We are launching a whole new podcast on July 13th. It is called Cracked Movie Club. That's right. It's an entire podcast from us folks at Cracked dedicated to nothing but movies. How about that? It's hosted by Tom Ryman and Abe Epperson. It's everything you would want from a weekly movie hangout. And we've been quietly, you know, putting it together for months now. Uh, Brad and Tom and Abe and everybody. And we finally get to launch it, finally bring it to you folks. It is so exciting. It makes me want to become president, also become Bill Pullman, stand on a car with a megaphone, and give a speech about how July 13th, we celebrate our Independence Day. uh, Okay, so in hindsight, that might just be something I want to role play personally. So let's move past it. Point is, Cracked Movie Club is coming soon. You can search the name Cracked Movie Club wherever you get podcasts or follow the link to its feed that we'll put in the description of the episode. And if you subscribe to that right now, you'll make the first episodes of the show drop into your app the moment they are ready through digital magic. Highly recommend doing it, and we hope you do. That's my spiel about Cracked Movie Club for now. And today's true spiel is about secret heroes from across entertainment who made the things you love without you knowing it. So... Please sit back or sit with good posture. That is worth a reminder. Anyway, enjoy this fun-ass episode with Michael Swaim and Matt Gorley. I'll catch you again at the end. Talk to you soon. We are joined today by Cracked's own Michael Swaim. Howdy. And if we are very happy as well to be joined by, from so many podcasts, I was there too, Super Ego, Pistol Shrimps Radio, the one and only Matt Gorley, everybody. Hi and hello. Yes. Hi, Matt. Hi. With his second appearance on the show, we were discussing that uh, just before. That's right. Yeah. 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 Uh, And now in the uh, the new situation. (laughs) <laughs> That's right. That's true. <laughs> uh, this room is officially called you the new situation. You guys got the situation from Jersey Shore? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Doing his own podcast? Well, this room is sort of a memorial in his honor. <laughs> That's why there's so much ab artwork all around. <laughs> it does look like ab. These sound baffles. Yeah. <laughs> oh. yeah. I'm ripped like a yeah. sound baffle. You wouldn't believe it down there. Seriously, yell at my abs. Nothing will come back. <laughs> Just tiny hairs yeah. all over. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and today we're talking about secret entertainment heroes. We want to talk about as Michael put it when he uh, suggested that we do it, people who have contributed profoundly to your entertainment without you knowing it. 
Uh, yeah. Which I think is really lovely because they're throughout all these things that we sometimes don't think of as team efforts. We're just like, nah, George Lucas woke up one day and made the movie. And like, no, it's yeah. a massive team. Yeah, I guess arguably more of them than the people you know, probably, because behind oh, yeah. every good director, there's even hundreds of these people. Absolutely. Wow. And one of the themes I kept coming back to in my research is no one knows the name of all the art directors and production designers, and you really should. Like, Tim Burton looks that way, not because of only his own choices, but because of an art designer he always works with. Wes Anderson gets that particular look by working with a particular set of people. And uh, I feel like people just don't have the bandwidth. Like, if you see their face in the movie... They're top of mind. If a director does 20 movies that change everything, like Spielberg <laughs> or Lucas, you'll spare a few brain cells to remember them, and then anything below that, it's just for, like, nerds like us. <laughs> and, and here we are. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I think especially fitting in the drive over here, I was listening to the latest comedy, Bang Bang, and at the end, the Earwolf tag came. Are you the voice of Earwolf That's as well? Me. Oh, That's there you me. go. Yeah. What? Yeah. Tricked so you. there's a secret entertainment hero <laughs> right there. <laughs> so he's been on hundreds of these episodes. And I somehow I realized so. it today for the first time, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed Nick Kroll saying Wolf Go Boom, of course, immediately, but. <laughs> yeah, he stands out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, well, let's get rolling, huh? Well, yeah, I thought a good first person maybe to talk about, because you, you both mentioned as we were thinking about who we love in this kind of category of person is a guy named Ben Burt. And I think that's someone who is maybe a classic example of this. Like maybe a few people know him out there, but he's someone who's also so fundamental to, I don't know, 40 years of movies, just flat out yeah, all of the time. Definitely. Yeah. And responsible for that tired old Wilhelm scream thing now. Oh, that's he? the best. Yeah. Which that's the one I didn't know. I knew, like, obviously I know he made the laser sound from Star I mean, he made all the key sounds from Star Wars, the lightsaber sound, the laser sound, Indiana Jones, basically all the, like, the whip, the uh, story Abe loves to tell is the Ark of the Covenant being opened as a toilet. The top of a toilet I tank being that. removed. Whoa, really? Oh, that makes total sense. If you, it sounds exactly like it. Yeah, it's just him <laughs> removing his toilet tank top. And then the other one I love is, you know when he he whips over the chasm to avoid the rolling boulder right. and, like, the branch rips out? Yeah. That's Ben Burt taking a bite of an apple. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then, you can find footage of him just standing in the booth waiting for the moment. And <laughs> <laughs> I remember being aware of his sound effects even as a kid, like not having any idea that any of that was re-recorded later. I'm seeing this at such a young age, but going like, those punch sounds are incredible. And then yeah. learning that it's like hitting a side of beef. And I spent my <laughs> childhood trying to perfect that sound with my mouth so that when I played, I could get like that. Yeah. Just like that reverb slapback effect <laughs> yeah. on that thing. Let yeah. me see if I can do it. Hold on. Here we go. Ow. There was a that little was really echo. Good. That's it's like, yeah. it's like a mini machine Snap gun back. drill. Like, jeez. Wow. He's. You're doing you it with worked beef. on this. I put my hours. In That's like thing. tube and throat singing, right? Like I don't know where the sound is coming from. And you never will. <laughs> Even I don't know. He's like he squeaks out a little fart at the end of each one. That's the key. That's the second sound. <laughs> did uh, Did you guys ever go to the Universal Studios show when they did the Foley artist oh, show? Oh God, yes. Yes. Oh God. Every birthday no. I would be request to go there. Did you guys grow up here in LA? I no. did. Yeah, I, I was outside Chicago. Okay, I, I didn't yeah. have it. Yeah. Yeah. He's from the Midwest. Did you not pick up on that? Like. 
glaringly <laughs> the second he walked in. I didn't right. really say it. I say, usually I have meats on me. You could have just hit yeah. that. But, uh, you, you know. left your cheese head hat off this time. <laughs> That's Wisconsin. Okay. I would never wear that. Well, for people who didn't know, and I actually don't know if it's still there, but there used to be like a whole show that was just a shrine to the beautiful art of Foley art, which is less of an art now, I think. Like, everything is getting digitized. There's a vast library of 10,000 sounds, and you make, like, it's still cool. I got to audit one of my friend's USC lectures, and it was a lady who did the intro theme for Pokemon, the cartoon show. Uh And so they had access to the file and could split it apart. And it actually has like a hundred and some layers of sounds and just like animals going, "Ah, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like it mixed into the thing. So like there's still definitely an art to mixing sound, but man, it used to be that they would just roll tape, project the movie, and you'd walk through a tray of rocks because the scene is a <laughs> yeah. guy walking on gravel. Yeah. And then a lady would scream because there's a scream. And then you'd like stab a side of meat yeah. to get that slap effect. Yeah. Amazing. And they'd pull someone down from the audience to do it to a Back to the Future scene. They'd do it terribly and it would be hilarious. <laughs> oh. It was a great show. I don't know if it's still there. Because I, I only knew fully work at all from like a couple clips of Ben Burt that I just found on the internet once that was a thing. Because like, for people who don't know, he he came up with most of the sound effects in Star Wars, yeah. Indiana Jones, E.T., Wally, and just a bunch he's of just the, anytime Spielberg or Lucas needed something, he pretty much did it. He's the voice of Wally. Yeah. He's the voice of Chewbacca. Oh, I also love the lasers in Star Wars. Oh. And when you know it, you're like, of course it is. The cable? Yeah, yeah. it's a, like a metal telephone cable, and you're just like wanging on it with a piece of wood. And you're like, oh, yeah, that yeah. is exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> I remember watching when the prequels came out, and you know there was obviously a huge backlash against those films, but I wasn't immediately like, I hate these movies, because there was enough Ben Burt and John Williams in sure. there where I'm going, like, it was still giving me my Star Wars fix. <laughs> you, I hear a lightsaber. <laughs> that sound is so iconic and so amazing that he invented, and I, I can't dismiss something if it just right. has that alone. Like, yeah. That's enough for me somehow. I mean, think <laughs> so about this. horrible things about me. I I'm easily one of them. <laughs> <laughs> like, as we all know, Darth Vader was completely developing over time. They didn't know who would provide the voice ultimately or exactly how it would sound. Ben Burt was instrumental in saying, like, you know what? I recorded myself breathing through a scuba suit. I yeah. think he should have some kind of breathing problem. You couldn't have Darth Vader without that now. Yeah. Right. It's perfect. Yeah. He even uh, lightsabers were the sound of a film projector running, and then he mixed that with an old TV oh. tube sound. And, that and he combination. would, like, move it around in front of a speaker or something, too, to get that phase effect That interference? Yeah. Yeah. I also saw that those battle droid tanks in Phantom Menace was, an, I think, an electric razor in a metal mixing bowl that he's just going, That's moving around. Amazing. I love that. Stuff. I wonder what, because. That's when he's on task and has like probably come prepared with, I figured out what kind of works and we're going to try a few things. Yeah. What is his brainstorming process? I know. I feel like he raids his wife's kitchen because also wasn't Jabba the Hutt like some of his casserole or something? Yeah. Tongue oh, I haven't heard that. Casserole. Oh, oh just like mushing it around I think with his that hand. I could be wrong about that. It's something like <laughs> but that. But I do imagine he just like sits on the couch, smokes a joint, and like throws shit at other <laughs> shit and listens to what sound it makes and is like, that's something. That's your movie. <laughs> Right, like he comes over for a party and he's just like, I need to borrow all your stuff. Hang yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. I need to rub everything you have against every other thing like an RPG character sorting their inventory. <laughs> I know this is a total digression, but I'll just quickly say 
I agree retroactively about the original trilogy only because I think the new ones are way more guilty of taking the actual plot points and just recycling them. And at least the original three were like, we haven't done a pod race. Here's a pod race. Yeah. We haven't done oh, this plot yeah. point. We're going to try a new thing. They do get some retroactive credit from me too for that. Yeah, that they were just trying to do something new. I've softened on it. Regardless of maybe they're not great. They are <laughs> unlike anything in cinema history because Star oh, yeah. Wars like set a bar and it became iconic. These things aren't quite iconic, but they're also like strangely unique. The way there are no backgrounds, and I know they did that with like Sky Captain and Sin City and stuff like that, but this is different. Like there's something so antiseptic and weird in all of the yes. acting and everything that I almost enjoy watching them now as a strange academic thing of like, how did this happen? You know? Yeah. Just one man with two Made much Natalie power. Portman cry. With, I know. <laughs> and and I'm not a Lucas hater. I think the guy's amazing and great and should have done what he wanted to do. I'm actually glad they exist now, especially that they're kind of going back to some of what works and what right, you sure, tried and true themes. <laughs> now yeah. I look at that stuff as as a strange anomaly that I enjoy to like a weird artifact, it. right? Yeah. Because I doubt they'll ever deviate from the formula again without Lucas like just deciding that they will. Yeah. So it's gonna be oh well, but <laughs> I'll still watch thirty six more Star Wars movies. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Every Christmas. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> Same. Yeah. Way. I'm glad, Matt, that you brought up that part of the enjoyment of the prequels in that actual time when they came out was Ben Burt and also John Williams. Like, yeah. oh, at least we got that. Like, a long time ago, I wrote a sketch where it was just John Williams going around the office like, I showed up. Hey, <laughs> I did my job. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and wonderfully just, so. His, yeah. Yeah. Those stand with some of the originals. I yeah. selected excellent classical music and paraphrased it very well. <laughs> 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 I have a chip on my shoulder just because... Growing up, my dad was already the hipster who was like, that's just Desiree. The Jaws really? theme's just this. And he would play a record of, oh like, Oh, my God. Yeah. What a dad. <laughs> yeah. My dad exposed me to a lot of these people. Oh, that's great. He's why I'm in this job, I think. Wow. Uh, I learned about sex from NHR Geiger picture book that he I found that he did. Are you, you know, kidding me? It was up high. So and your I was, first mm. idea of sex was a Geiger-esque version of it? Yeah, I always say it. I said Geiger, didn't I? Yeah. Oh, I, no, I wasn't trying to go yeah, to. Yeah. No, I, I don't give a damn. <laughs> but what <laughs> I give a damn about is <laughs> when you found out what sex really was, how did you reconcile my, <laughs> well, I don't even know if I can say it's a concept of sex, but like it was the first time I saw any depiction of a uh, penis oh, right. and vaginas and lips on a penis and yeah. little zombie babies with their lips near a penis. And a penis as a knife stabbing a woman. And a penis a as a knife sure. stabbing oh, a woman sex. Yeah. who's all gray and just covered in slimy cobwebs. <laughs> and yeah, well, I was bizarrely fascinated by it and would like sneak it and look at it. Well, sure. And I've loved Giger ever since. <laughs> but it was upsetting. Yeah, my yeah. dad found out and had to have like a talk where he's like, like, the oh, difference okay. between art and reality, yeah. <laughs> I feel like a lot of people find out what sex is, and then later there are some, like, oh, surprising or embarrassing or weird things they find out later. You, for you, it sounds like it was all downhill. Yeah. By the time <laughs> I was actually interacting in a sexual way, I was not bringing <laughs> conceptions from Giger's universe into, like, why is my dick not turning into a knife? I don't understand. <laughs> you know, I, I, like, had sorted things out with my peers and a river of internet porno. Very educational. Um, but, yeah, back to Ben Burt. Let's leave this topic. <laughs> Two things I didn't know before last night. The Wilhelm scream, as you mentioned, Matt, which, in case you don't know, is an iconic scream that goes like, ah, that is in every movie ever. 
And uh, he started the trend of using it. Yeah, apparently it was first in a movie called Distant Drums in, a in Western, 1951. Yeah. It was used for a guy getting eaten by an alligator. <laughs> and then uh, it was used fa- reused famously in a movie called The Charge at Feather River in 1953. Oh, that's the one I thought and was then, the original. Okay. And then Ben Burt is such a like iconic sound person and worked on enough movies that when he thought it was a funny inside joke, it became an inside joke for all of sound, for all sort of the Sort of to art. honor him, yeah. 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 And then a more recent one I didn't know about is the idea of the audio black hole, which is really popular in trailers now, especially. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, where they put like seven frames of total suppressed silence before a major explosion. Yeah. I can't believe that's something you even like had to invent. Like when I heard the factoid that like the Beatles had the first song to ever have a fade in and I'm like how did no one just do that in like 1910 right but yeah I guess he was the first one to be like you know what would make this explosion pop is that the attack of the clones that sonic yeah where you get that like all the sound is sucked into a vacuum yeah and then boom and in the trailers it's that that descending bass note powering down and those like the Wilhelm scream and that descending bass note silence thing are some of the most overused things ever now Absolutely. I, I can't stand a trailer when it does that kind of thing now. It's oh. Yeah, but yeah. it wasn't old when he came up no, with it. No, <laughs> I know. I know, no. I mean, he's, of course, a good idea gets used over and over. Yeah. God. The last thing I wanted to mention about Benny before we move on is I found out he was part of the, the panel of people. They were called the Golden Ears. And they are people... Golden Ears? The Golden Ears. Okay. Yeah, he's yeah. one of the Golden Ears. <laughs> like E-A-R-S or E-E-R-S? Yeah, like, like musketeers. Yeah, ears with your ears. ears yeah. Okay, yeah. And uh, <laughs> it was a small panel of like legendary audio people who designed the ATSC standards, which replaced NTSC. Oh, wow. So like the way audio comes out of your TV is standardized oh and Ben Burt decided... The mix. Like, he's everyone's dad dialing in the 5.1 and being like, this is it. This is the surround. It should be like this. It's probably like, uh, what is it, the nine old men of Disney? Where it's like, yeah, these nine guys drew everything. And just know that. They're the group. (laughs) It's like the Supreme Court of Sound. A golden ear is a term used in professional audio circles to refer to a person who's thought to possess almost supernatural hearing talent. (sighs) Yeah, well, I assumed that. (laughs) But they you, you uh, can only get in if you hear a certain note. Like they <laughs> they constantly broadcast that as a beacon. And if you yeah. arrive at the source of the beacon, you're in. Oh, Cylon style. Yes. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Ben Burt has a whistle on a chain. <laughs> they do have uh, an award called the Man with the Golden Ear Award, which Ben oh, Burt has won many times. What? Yeah. Oh my I mean, God. they're giving themselves awards at that point. That's not. Yeah. Know. What award is not given by ourselves, really, <laughs> when you think about it? I think we can circle back to Giger. That's 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 sure, covered, right? Giger. It makes uh, me very uncomfortable, but if that's what we got to do, <laughs> is uh, I have me, a weird boner right now. I really, <laughs> it's literally slicing through the table. Yeah. <laughs> well, I uh, also thought of Giger because Matt, you have an excellent impression of him. You do. He's it's also, the worst impression, but <laughs> that's what makes it great. Did you uh, ever uh, <laughs> pause when he passed away and consider? Is it insulting to do it, or were you? I did only because I had no idea I would get so much internet response from his death. I think because there's no one else that really represents Giger other than himself, right? And so I just got so many people saying, like, "Sorry for your loss." Oh, I'm thinking of you today. Yes, (laughs) I like the guy. I do. I really do like his art. But he was more like a convenient 
use of his weirdness as an impression for comedic effect. Right. So I've never felt like I was a representative of Really? Because it is funny now. I'm guilty of that too. I'm sure it was just a comedic choice and the character took off, but now I'm like, you're keeping Giger alive. Well, then I'm, I'm You can't flattered. retire the character. I'm flattered. <laughs> we do live superego shows and I did the character at the last one and somehow this happens to me. I have like maybe a four to six year shelf life for a character uh-huh. and then I somehow just lose it. And I remember that night not being able to really do Giger. I could do the voice kind of, but it would just transform into something else. And so I'm like sure the voice would back. change a or you bit. have like, I'm trying to less remember. like touchstones of creepy stuff. Uh, well, all of it. Of yeah. Okay. You, it's like, just falling. The wheels are falling out. off. Like, yeah. <laughs> it shows you're like how deviant you are with how much you can go to that. Well, because I, I think at some point I did run out of weird. It was, that's what is say. truly impressive about the character though, <laughs> is like, I would have run out after like chrysalis and mucus and you at least had like two dozen more <laughs> go to gross words before you had to say chrysalis again. It's very impressive. Let me see if I can. <laughs> Sometimes I grow a beard just so I can burn it off with a tar-based tallow candle that burns a black flame. And as you can imagine, it is a cold flame. And so my beard would turn into a ice seven particle only to fracture and crystallize into a sugar for my cereal, which, by the way, is nut and honey. <laughs> okay, I still got it. Wow. I still got it. Still hey. got it. Whatever oh it is. Oh, my goodness. I still got it. And you worked yeah. in a Vonnegut reference. <laughs> Not on purpose. <laughs> yeah, that's, but that's <laughs> good no, improv Now I know right what you're, there. yeah, I didn't even realize that. <laughs> <laughs> He's such a perfect person to pull out. I feel like with a lot of creators, they are regular people outside of what they came up with. Like when I was looking up more about Ben Bird, I saw pictures of him and he's like just a guy. Yeah, like he doesn't really go around a in a Vader mask, but like, ah, right. remember? No. You know, yeah. like every picture of H.R. Giger I've ever seen is him surrounded by black alien penises yeah. And, yeah. and just crazy. Or riding on his bone train through <laughs> his house. Yeah. And yet he has a like little soft cat. Yeah. Yeah, Moogie. Oh. Goss love cats. <laughs> <laughs> in case you don't know, H.R. Giger created the Xenomorph from Aliens. Yes. Uh, did the art direction on the ill-fated Dune project. And my favorite, the cover of Brain Salad Surgery, the seminal, that was a poor choice of words, Emerson <laughs> Lake and Palmer album cover. Yes. That features oh, a woman, man. like, blowing a, a like, stone cylinder. <laughs> I know there's people with particular album covers that were like, that naked lady haunted my dreams, and mine yeah. was the lady on the... Emerson Lake and Palmer cover, which I'll admit is a creepy because her hair is like made of bones. Yeah. <laughs> he also no did the microphone stand for corn. Oh, really? Corn, apparently. Like, really? I don't know how he goes from like the prog rock of Emerson Lake Palmer to corn. Yeah. It's just, you know, maybe at the time things were tough. I don't <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he was a fan. I want to see that mic stand now. I'm sure it's Googleable. Yeah. Isn't it like a crazy, like black melty yeah, I think statue so. kind of thing? Yeah. Like, it's not just a pole, like everyone else right. ever. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, that would be amazing if you're corn to go. It is great. It's, it looks sort of like Metropolis, the robot from Metropolis, actually. Yeah, it's really cool. It's a creepy alien lady thrusting her chest out and you her head holds a microphone. It's way too good for corn to sing into. That's true. I'll say that. <laughs> you wouldn't right away know that was Giger just because it isn't black even, you know? That's true, yeah. Right. It's almost like a hood ornament or an Oscar or something, yeah. <laughs> it would be a good award for, like, the most disturbing sex scene of the year award. Can you for bring the up Geigers. the ELP yeah. cover? I want to see that. Again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
Brain salad surgery, which my dad had to explain to me as a metaphor for blowjobs. Boy, your dad really gave you some schooling, didn't he? He did. It's a great album, and it has, like, a skull on the outside flaps, and you open it up, and it's this lady with her lips pursed. Here's the thing. They airbrushed out the penis for the album cover, but I saw it in the book of Giger's art, so there was a giant, like, wiener but there from what as I well. know of Emerson Lake Palmer's music, it isn't Giger-esque. Is this album more dark or something? Uh, no, not really. I mean, their themes are. Yeah. They, they write about, like, the end of the world. They write about, they're such nerds. It's yeah, like uh, Led Zeppelin. They have a great 30-minute song about, in the future, the last surviving human arguing with the ship's computer about whether humanity deserved to live or not. <laughs> so it's, like, dark, but in a nerdy way. Yeah. It's like Dungeons & Dragons <laughs> yeah. dark, yeah. No, I think Giger just got to a point of pop culture relevance where people wanted to dip into that well. Sure. And why not? Yeah. 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 I would too. They know he can do that thing. And yeah. There you go. Yeah. I was sad to see him die because even in the documentaries, how strange he is, he seems very sweet. Like he just seems sure. childlike in many yeah. ways. But then, yeah. of course, he's doing all this deviant visual <laughs> artwork. So it's a weird thing. But I do find him to be very endearing. Yeah. yeah. I feel that way about Crispin Glover, too. Yeah. I hope <laughs> he, he scares is. me a little more. He does, but I hope he really is that way. Like, I really hope it's not an act. Do you know that's another superhero <laughs> impression that I would do oh, that I can't do anymore? That's so I right. Even try, I, but, I recall that, some Crispin sketches now that you say up. that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> you have a creepy, deviant vibe, I, I, I think. must. Yeah, yeah. I know. It's a dark side. <laughs> yeah. You're soon to launch well, your Cosby character, I heard. <laughs> it's going to be, yeah. <laughs> You're like, now's the time. <laughs> People are ready. <laughs> Moving from Cosby as fast sure. as possible. I want to keep up with art direction in general because I think that's a particularly fascinating one where that's an art where you almost never see the person in general. So those people will be under the radar almost all the time. And Matt, I had first heard you on a podcast on James Bonding. Yeah. And I think Ken Adam and his role in the James Bond movies is fascinating and beyond that because I don't think people know that one guy pretty much came up with like evil villain in mm -hmm. your head. That's, yeah. that's what you think of yeah. as Ken Adam's production design. He is my favorite movie technician of all time. I just love his work so much so that I we're renovating our home and I there's a room that I'm sort of doing kind of as best I can. You're going to have a layer homage. room? That's it's amazing. Somewhat, like yeah. I'm mixing, you know, stone, like ledge stone with wood in a kind of mid-century yeah. way that it's not, I think, abundantly clear that it's Ken Adam because yeah. I don't have, also have like steel plates and computers in the wall. Well, until I, you invite yeah. someone in and all they see is the back of your chair and you slowly rotate, <laughs> right. then they're like, I see what you're doing here. Yeah. yeah when, when you said that, I immediately imagined like four kinds of laser traps and Sharks. Yes. Well, give me time. <laughs> but he's someone I find to be just as interesting a man as his artwork is. You know, he was a German-born Jew that moved to England when he was like 13 and then fought for the British against Germany. He was one of three German-born soldiers. I was a fighter. I think he fought in the Battle of Britain. And he's yeah. just this incredible guy. He lived really long. He yeah. did the the war room table from Dr. Strangelove. In oh, fact, the wow. reason he didn't do the second Bond film from Russia with Love, I think, was because he was working on Dr. Strangelove. So he worked with Kubrick quite a bit. And yeah. I mean, he invented the Aston Martin with all the guns and everything. He wasn't yes. just the visuals. He was an ideas man and coming up with things. And, uh, he was I So the him. idea of he should have a car that shoots missiles out and oil slicks and stuff. Okay, that's Apparently, amazing. Yeah, yeah. 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 And a lot of the other ideas, like, you know, the Bond producers were famous for reverse engineering things, like scouting first and going, look at this location, let's write something for it. Uh, and I think it was similar with Ken Adam in like, 
what can you do this time? Or we need this. And yeah. then he would bring that and more, which that it would then work into the script, like building a sub, a certain type of sub and building the largest set at the time that had ever been made, which was first the volcano set from you only live twice. And then the like sea hanger in the spy who loved me, yeah. which was yeah. this just enormous thing. In fact, they didn't know how to light it. So the, <laughs> as the story goes, Kubrick was working on The Shining in the same studio, and one night he brought Kubrick over to get advice on lighting it. Oh, and Kubrick awesome. didn't want that to be known that he'd worked on a Bond film, I guess. Really? Wow. <laughs> but they were friends because they had worked together. And he's <laughs> just this interesting guy that he dresses very dashing. He, like, he yeah. often has a, like a scarf in his shirt. He's almost like, always smoking Scott a cigar. Guy, yeah. sure. And he just does this deep German voice like this. That was sort of Russian, and he fought Nazis. Yeah, so he's a war hero. He's got that going for him. Yeah, amazing. And if you were yeah. caught at that time as a German fighting against, you would have been killed for treason. I'm sure so it's it the ultimate like penalty. Right? Taking yeah. more of a risk, but oh, I just love his work. And then wasn't I believe we've covered on the site? Ian Fleming himself was also in like a weird group that fought Nazis with Christopher Plummer, right? Oh, Christopher, or Christopher Lee. Lee. Yeah. yeah. It was like the OSS, right? It was something Yeah, like he was in the Navy Intelligence and spearheaded uh, actually a mission called GoldenEye, which then became yes. the name of his Jamaican estate, which and then the became a Bond movie. And the was called something like yeah. the his Bureau of Ungentlemanly Conduct or something well, like that? He also had his group he called his Red Indians. Uh-oh. His uh-huh. Here we are. Yeah, yeah. And here we are. Because now, they were authentically Native Americans, right? Of course, yes. Great. Of Good. course. Yeah. He Great. was in no way Good. racist, homophobic, or misogynist. <laughs> yeah. Don't read the books. That's why James right. Bond Don't. is satire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Performance art character. Exactly. Uh, there was one thing about Ken Adam I read where apparently on Dr. No, uh, there's one scene in the movie where there's a guy named Professor Dent and he's being given a tarantula. I know. I was going to say this exact same thing. So go ahead. I know. Exactly oh, okay, great. Talk about. Yeah. You probably don't remember exactly the scene. just grossed out by it. But the room is very distinctive. It's like all bare walls. And then there's this one circular skylight and they have a lot of wide shots of him alone. It looks really cool. And apparently they made Ken Adam come up with that room with their last like 450 British pounds of the budget. They were like, we need some for this scene just do it and he was like uh, minimalism and it worked it was yeah great. and it became yeah. the most iconic set probably from that picture yeah it's just got strange angles at a time in like modernism where that was you weren't seeing that a ton in movies I don't think and if you just google like Ken Adam tarantula room or whatever yeah it'll come up and it's very simple but it's like a, a steel mesh framework coming out of a circle and it's, it's so cool looking yeah doing a lot with a little and problem solving that's my favorite and then the opposite thing happened at the end of his tenure like where they were just throwing money at him well, for, and it wasn't even the end of his his role there but when they did the volcano set that was the first million dollar set jeez and it was wow. huge but yeah. then in Moonraker they go into this control shuttle control launch room and it was all based on Mondrian paint Painting. So the monitors all kind of have these yeah. primary color, strangely Balance, geometric right. fa- yeah, yeah. facades, and it's fascinating. I mean, he was always thinking one step above thematically. It's and- amazing. And it is sort of a lost art in the sense that I don't know why ever again we ever would make a million-dollar volcano set. <laughs> There's such easier ways to, unless yeah, it's yeah. literally yeah, it a, via, you're unless right. it's like a viral marketing attempt, why right, you right. don't have to. You'd build a portion Green screen some of it, CG the rest, yeah. you're yeah. good to go. Although you, you know? could build a small set, probably cost a million dollars today. But That's like the, true, the just equivalent. with inflation, yeah. right, right. I know, well, that be, is a lost art. Yeah, yeah well, the, the volcano now would be episode three of Star Wars That's when right. they're just <laughs> shouting at <laughs> yeah. each other from uh, across the thing. <laughs> 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 and while we're on set designers, one of my favorites is Alex McDowell. Does that name ring a bell? Yeah. Well, all right, so we covered him on Crack before once, and what I love about him is... He sort of is the master of 
a room you walk into and you go, oh, things are bad. I'm uncomfortable. Oh. Whoever lives here is on drugs. This is very gross and like dingy. So he was the art director and set designer for The Crow, Lawnmower Man, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Fight Club, Minority oh. Report. Uh -huh. And the weird standout, I think, on his IMDb pages, and Fantastic Mr. Fox. He built all the miniature sets. Oh, interesting. Wow. Which feels nothing yeah. like the others. One guy but, did all that. That's yeah. Amazing. Like, I encourage people to dig into the Fight Club story because he's basically an architect and engineer as well because he scouted a bunch of locations, wasn't happy with any of them for, like, the dilapidated mansion they live in. So he just drew an architectural blueprint and built that house Jeez. and had it made as a functioning flop house, like tenement. And like there was some plumbing and electricity and stuff. Oh my God. Yeah. Amazing. And fear and loathing. Like if you've ever been on a set, it's so easy, not easy. It takes a lot of artistic vision, like we were saying, but that this guy, every job he's on is carting in just tons of garbage <laughs> and like placing meticulous, like he's the guy you call in when you need someone's space to be a hoarder house. And I just can't imagine the level of like detail work that has to go into making a hoarder's room set. That's insane to me. Like, yeah, I think people don't necessarily realize that or at least fully think about it with production designers is that a lot of their work, they build every element of it. With Ken Adam, like a lot of those Bond movies were shot at Pinewood Studios in like north of London. And I've been there and it's just like, it doesn't look like anything. No, so right. they're, they're just constructing every element of this guy's like undersea Caribbean fortress, you know. And yeah. then same with Alex McDowell. He's building like, especially a hoarder house. You're like, great prop team. I need a thousand of things. Right. Minority Report's amazing because I feel yeah. like that image of screens and how screens will be used and how you'll just wave your fingers at them has influenced so many visions of the future now. Like, that's its own through line of, like, movies that after Minority Report look like Minority Report. Yeah, it is weird how life is imitating art, especially with technology. And I'm sure that those original things that they were used, like that screen in Minority Report, was because there was an inkling of that's where technology was heading. Right. But I do think now that fiction is influencing technology, if not solely because people see it and they expect a certain element of that and companies work toward that. And it's so strange. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, that minority report might be responsible for how we eventually become brains in a box. <laughs> <laughs> I could see that. <laughs> the the transgression. We still need some psychic <laughs> naked ladies in a vat, but oh, we're I close. Got those. Oh, I got okay. Those on yeah. Oh, yeah. In yeah. the Bond room, right? Uh -huh. yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then looking at his IMDb, he also did Corpse Bride and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Ah. So he was not like, he Man. wasn't from the beginning with Burton, but he definitely can nail, if, like, yeah. if he has to do Burton, he yeah. can nail it. I was just uh, talking to my friend Michael today at lunch before this, and we were talking about Ken Adam because I was saying I was coming on this. And I didn't realize this, but he did the original conceptual art for Star Trek, the motion picture. And oh, wow. I don't think they didn't use it. Wow. But now you know how the Star Wars films are going back to the unused Ralph McQuarrie art? Yeah. Right. I guess the new Star Trek show is going back to some of Ken Adam's work, and there's pictures of his Enterprise on there, and it looks like it's really pointing. It looks like a hood ornament. Nice. A car. And <laughs> I just love that he's still as just. For like you know. <laughs> promotional materials, or are they going to make some of the like exterior shots of the ship look like I, the old ship? I don't know. That would be cool. <laughs> I yeah. just don't know. But I we'll oh, find out. Yeah. 
next time on the Crack Podcast. <laughs> Previously. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. A lot of these people get revived even years after their death, <laughs> yeah. unfortunately. And also, uh, uh, like, people who do the art for movie posters, you can find their galleries online, and it's just, it's such a great nostalgia hit. <laughs> people in the know in Hollywood will know, oh, I should look up that person's gallery. But, yeah. like, like, with somebody like Alex McDowell, when we think of, oh, who did the iconic scene from the movie of a touchscreen? Well, that's the brilliance of Philip K. Dick right. and or Steven Spielberg. Right. Like, that's those guys. But yeah. the right. third person on the list way down is Alex McDowell, who yeah. like, did it. Well, I, am I moving us on too quickly? Because that segues really well into Wayne White. Let's go Segway. for it. Let's do it. He's my favorite of all. Just hits my soft spot. Uh, he's art director on Pee Wee's Playhouse. Oh, wow. So he literally, he like co-created with Paul Rubens all those iconic characters. And I mean, just, I love that, because my brother's like this, he just is the guy who goes to the dump, finds interesting stuff, and builds stuff. Cool. So he just made that chair, he made a box, and he's like, we should put a dude's head in this, that's a character. <laughs> he made all those puppets you love from Pee Wee's Playhouse just out of shoeboxes and cardboard and paper scraps and stuff. And he's just an amazing personality. You can find him on YouTube like doing puppet shows with all those puppets. Isn't there a documentary about him? There is, I yeah. think, yeah. There's a great Wayne White documentary called Beauty is Embarrassing. <laughs> that I did see, and it was excellent. And the cover is, yeah, one of the Pee-wee-type paper puppets. There was a specific undercurrent in the 90s where kids' things were art-directed in a way that was flirting with being disturbing. And I think that's what a lot of people respond mm -hmm. to about Pee-wee's Playhouse. As a kid, you're like, this has all the trappings of a kid's show, but it feels somehow adult. He never does anything explicit, but it feels weirdly adult. And I think Wayne White's art is why you feel that way. And like, he also went on to do design Weird Al's whole aesthetic whenever you see Weird Al in a milieu or in a show. Most oh. notably, obviously, the Weird Al show, but also, like, just public appearances mm -hmm. or events Weird Al did. He would design, you know, his concert sets and things like that. Cool. And Beekman's World, oh. <laughs> which I love. The music video, Big Time, Peter Gabriel. Oh, yeah. And the Smashing Pumpkins music video, Tonight, Tonight. And if you look at those all, you're like, oh, obviously, yeah, the same guy did all of these. And I just love that... It took us doing this episode for me to collate all those things and realize it's almost like if Picasso, when he was alive, if all of his art was chewed up and used in different things that were for sale, right. you wouldn't necessarily know he is a great artist. Like yeah. Wayne White is an important artist. And uh, he also invented a trend I see all the time now, which is buying a decent to crappy painting at a thrift store and then painting something amazing into it. <laughs> uh -huh. Oh, awesome. uh, yeah. I highly recommend Googling Wayne White thrift store paintings. He paints like giant blocks of text. Like you're doing fucking great <laughs> into like a thrift store painting of some dogs hunting a fox or whatever. And they're awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, cause I saw that person, I think it was on Tumblr. I saw them, they were taking thrift store paintings of landscapes and they were just adding monsters. So it's yes. just a lake, and then suddenly there's a thing walking through it. And yes, and, and so you think of that as just that. like an internet meme, but Wayne White was doing that at like gallery exhibitions, That's you know, awesome. 30, 40 years ago. <laughs> it's one of his things, like Mondrian does the squares. <laughs> Wayne White writes fan-fucking-tastic over a thrift store painting. <laughs> He's awesome. And yeah, we can't do justice. I think with a lot of the art directors, obviously we can't do justice, so more than usual I encourage everyone to just like Google these names and click the image tab and go like, oh, yeah, yeah. 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 This episode is going to have some footnotes, I can tell you. A lot yeah. of links. Yeah, yeah. Because everyone we talked about also will do commercial work. Like Wayne White's done countless 
props for commercials. So if you just do an image search of props Wayne White made, he stitched together like 8% of the fabric of my childhood universe. (laughs) And there's a handful of artists like that, and I just love them. Support for today's show comes from our friends at Squarespace. You ought to build yourself a website, or maybe you ought to build yourself a better website. Maybe that stray blog you're running is not quite the web presence you could use. You can get a unique domain, a beautifully designed template, and 24-7 support for your personal website by joining Squarespace. You can add and arrange content with the click of a mouse, there's nothing to install or patch, and you have your very own IT department of Squarespace support at your fingertips. So to make your next move and start your free trial at squarespace.com today, enter offer code CRACKED to get 10% off your first purchase. Again, that's CRACKED, C-R-A-C-K-E-D. You can even read it off the logo of this podcast because we're user-friendly. Use that code at squarespace.com today to get started with your own .com or other domain extension and make your next move. Hey there, podcast listener. Maybe you are a person hirer. If you're looking for new candidates for a job, you might not know where to post it to find the best candidates because finding great talent can be tough. Thankfully, with ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Their technology will assemble candidates for you, and over 80% of jobs that get posted to ZipRecruiter bring in a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. You can go to bed, wake up, and you'll be most of the way there. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen rate and manage candidates all in one place with their easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, our listeners can post jobs on their site for free. That's right, for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com cracked. That's ZipRecruiter.com cracked. One more time to try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com cracked. Sticking with the idea of things looking great, I think you want to talk about Roger talk Deakins about me as now? well, right? Oh, oh okay. Yeah. Ooh, Deacons. <laughs> the Deeks. All right. Yeah. Abe, I feel like Abe, our cracked in-house director, should he be here for this. He has a uh, portrait of Roger Deacons above his mantle that he, like, kisses when he's going yeah. to a shoot. Like, oh, he, he looks almost as beautiful as one of his films. There's just something about him. He's stark oh, really? white hair. Oh, I don't yeah. know what he looks oh, like. just like a, a hail fellow well-met. I don't know. Like, he's just oh, a good-looking older man. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. It's big, thick <laughs> head of hair. He kind of looks like, like older Roger Daltrey or uh, probably the same age now. Yes. He's probably younger. Roger Daltrey's him. a good call. I could I see know. Robert Evans. He's just like a formidable-looking man. I've seen some like on-set pictures of him with one of those little viewfinders that they carry. What are those called? Like it's a fake camera that you wear as a necklace. Yeah, you know? yeah, that thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> viewfinder. Let's call it a viewfinder. Okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, neck cam. Yeah. But it, just him in some jeans and a button-up shirt and a black and white photo, and it looks like he himself took the photo. It's so beautiful. And oh man. He's just yeah. a good-looking guy. So <laughs> if you're not aware of the people we've talked about, he has some name recognition, especially more in the UK where. He's like a beloved national hero. He's won the BAFTA award many times, has not won an Oscar, I don't slighted think. Slighted for Skyfall. He was slighted. Slighted, oh, yeah. it was great. Deserves, oh, yes. deserves many Oscars and has never won one for whatever reason that I, I don't know the internal politics oh, or whatever. Like, but That like Burning Mansion stuff at the end oh, alone. The whole in, movie. Yeah. yeah. Him floating into that casino in Macau. Yeah. It's so gorgeous. A Bond he, film has never looked that good. 
cinematography-wise. <laughs> Absolutely. And for the people who aren't aware, I am just going to shotgun some of his credits. Do it, do it. He, so he's always a director of photography or cinematography. And in case you really, like, don't live in Los Angeles, <laughs> that means he, with working with the director, he chose the way the movie looks. He decided what pictures to take. In Shawshank Redemption, they say, opening shot of people going in prison. He's the one who said, it's going to be a crane shot going in from above into the prison yard to represent getting uh, your liberty taken away. And the only other crane shot in the movie is going to be the famous rain shot when he escapes from prison and we reverse the crane move. Oh. So, like, he's thinking at that level yeah. and he's the reason. <laughs> you don't have to think about what the shots mean. But he is, and he's the reason you know in your guts that it's good. Yeah, and they you call all the lighting, yeah. too. And, exactly. Yeah. Lighting, the whole shebang of why it looks the way it looks, except for art direction. Yeah. Um, okay, so we're talking Barton Fink, The Hudsucker Proxy, Dead Man Walking, Fargo, Shawshank Redemption, The Big Lebowski, basically all Coen Brothers yeah. movies. Yeah. Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? The Man Who Wasn't There, A Beautiful Mind, the Village, The House of Sand and Fog, No Country for Old Men, Doubt, In the Valley of Allah, A Serious Man, Revolutionary Road, Rango, Skyfall, Hail Caesar, Unbroken, Sicario, Prisoners, The New Blade Runner. I should have stopped. <laughs> Rango is yeah. an animated film. Right? Yes. So that's fascinating. Yes. That was really interesting to me. I wonder if me. he was like sit-down consultant. Like he is cre He's credited as cinematography consultant. Yeah, that makes sense. So I think he sat at the computer for a huge fee and went, no, 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 turn it a little yeah. more. Yeah. That's a good shot. But that's the same effect. <laughs> yeah. I, now I want to watch that movie. I've never seen it. And oh, just to know that it was. It is quite well, I, I better his, than you'd expect. Yeah. <laughs> I want his Rango approach to be that exact thing with the neck cam and like stick. <laughs> Staring boldly, you know, but it's just in a little room. I need you uh, to yeah. make me a model so I can look <laughs> through it and tell you. I watched this little documentary on Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Because that was one of the first films that they digitized and did a computer, basically, color time on. Yes. To make it all kind of yellow and sepia-toned and that. And the Coens yeah. were the first to popularize editing full-budget feature films in Final Cut Pro, oh, which was just so cool. meaningful to us who make our dumb sketches on Final Cut Pro to be like, this is what they used to cut <laughs> Oh Brother. It's going to be just as it good as Oh Brother. Yeah. Well, I remember seeing Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, too, and being like, that sepia thing is a thing you can do? I know. You I can know. just make the whole movie one color? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. But they also but, did some of it chemically, I think, if I remember correctly, because there's scenes of them dipping... All the God, like that was it's crazy a, that everything had to be color timed chemically. Yes, dipped wow. in the right amount baths. of colors. Yeah, baths, like and people could invent new sequences of acid washes and be like, "Hey, this creates this look." I patented it. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, and speaking of stuff like that, Deacon's actually there is a, and I guess you can do it digitally, but it looks better in camera. There's now a sequence of lenses that is very popular that creates like this dreamy vignette look and it's called a deaconizer. Oh my God. Because he just built it one day on set and everyone, like Ben Burt, is like, wow. well, I'm using that. <laughs> and how did you make that? And he posted instructions in an interview and now it's widely used. You can just That's buy deaconizers amazing. online. Yeah. Yeah. And he actually invented it for a movie I highly recommend. It's one of the most boring movies I'll ever recommend on this podcast. The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert I've Ford. I've never seen that. I actually, I, I like that movie. Yeah. I yeah. love that movie, yeah. but you have to go in thinking to yourself, I love cinematography and film. I do. It is insanely boring and I and slow, and I see why everyone, every shot is lavishly longer than it needs to oh, be. I'll take it. But 
it includes some of the best shots, like make your heart stop shots in any movie I've ever seen. And I don't care if the plot is yeah, good or not. I've just a shot of out of context. House of Cards, just because I love the way it looks. Like right. production design and cinematography. Yes. Yeah. There is a train robbery lit in the woods and they all just have burlap sacks on their heads and it's lit only by the train light as it comes through the woods and illuminates them holding guns. It's chilling. All right, I'm going to watch that. <laughs> and then, yeah, I just have to call out, this is also the guy who cobbled together the scene in No Country where... Anton Chigurh's in the hall and Llewellyn's on the hotel bed and there's shadows under the door. And I watch that scene over and over and cannot understand how it's so tense. Because when you watch a Michael Bay movie and he gets you, you know exactly why it got you. It got you because an elaborately CG'd monster (laughs) leapt at you while the camera was spun around on like a pinwheel. Um, There were also babes. (laughs) Yes. but And sparks and hard music. (laughs) In No Country, and of course the Coens have a lot of credit, uh, everyone who worked on the movie does, but also the shot grammar is so simple. It's Shot of a door, shot of hands, shot of the floor, shot of a shadow. And I am, like, about to have a heart attack over here watching this shit. So I think Roger Deakins just deserves all the accolades in the world. And you're right, he was slighted. True Grit as well? He did, yeah. Yeah, that scene of him riding on the horse in the middle of the night. I haven't seen it since it came out, but that visually is stuck in my head. Where the the night sky is dying. Yeah, very blue. Yeah, yeah, And it's very, like, high... Highly lit for a nighttime shot, but in a realistic way. Because remember, like remember, day for night was a big thing. Yes, when they'd shoot something at day and then just Truffaut. put a filter <laughs> on it. Yeah, but I'm even thinking like Rambo was like Rambo Part yes, Two had a you bunch can tell. of that stuff. Yeah, and just, and it has the handy cam filter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and now you can do so much. Oh. Oh, God. I'm a drunk who lives behind a Chinese restaurant. I have nothing. <laughs> 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 that movie is delightful. A true grit. Yeah. Yeah, so that's Deacons. There's some people where, again, he seems like he's just a nice man. Yeah. So I don't have crazy stories. I just need you to know his name. <laughs> you need to know yeah. his name. Speaking of people who have, uh, you know, multiple skills that add to how all the shots of the movie come together, there's a guy who I had heard of as a director in general who you brought up, Matt, when we were emailing, who's mainly a stuntman named Hal Needham. Oh, yeah. Uh, I knew a little bit about him going in and then read about him and, oh, my God, he did everything. Yeah. Yeah. He did everything people of a certain age knew in their childhood, like Smokey and the Bandit, Cannonball Run, yeah. Ultra Force. No, I mean, Mega Force. I, I say Ultra Force because I once did a parody of it. <laughs> <laughs> but Mega Force, Hooper, and he was like fast friends with Burt Reynolds. In fact, I think he lived on Burt Reynolds' couch for years, and he was just okay. a journeyman stuntman. Yeah. And then was hanging out with Burt Reynolds all the time because Burt Reynolds was such a macho man, and they loved like trading stunts and stuff. And he had this script he basically strung together. It was like a few pages, I think, of Smoking the Bandit and took it to Burt Reynolds and said, like, will you do this? And he was like, basically, yeah. And so the only reason it got made is because Burt Reynolds was attached. He was huge at the time. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite movies of all time, Smoking Re- the Bandit. Yeah? yeah? I haven't seen it. Oh, God. It is, I'll check it Jackie out. Jackie Gleason in is incredible. Oh, I bet. It's really good. Jerry Reed is an amazing actor in this thing, by the way. Like He, he does some <laughs> of the best hurt acting after being beaten up. <laughs> yeah. Like, second only yeah. maybe to Mel Gibson. Because it's a lot of character and a lot of stunts, right? It's Mad Max Fury Road isn't a perfect analog, but sort of that kind of movie. Yeah, like it's, it's a always road moving. Chase and movie, it's, yeah, but it's yeah. a comedy as well. And yeah. um, 
you can just tell that they are dicking around the whole time <laughs> and having a blast because they're friends. Yeah. And it opens up in only in the South in 77, and it becomes the number two movie of 77 behind Star Wars. It was such a huge hit. Then they went on to do two sequels, the third of which is— Did it run only in the South or it expanded, expanded eventually? Gotcha, yeah. yeah. But the third one is really rough. But like Cannonball Run, which doesn't hold up that well if you watch it. Now, I think Smoking the Bandit actually holds up pretty well, but they just did a series of these dumb yeah. movies that were almost basically just reasons for them all to hang out with a budget. Right, yeah. You look at some it's of like Adam Sandler's new slate it, of movies. It, it it's, we're just is. hanging out. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I, it really, really is. And he's just this wonderful raconteur and storyteller. He's dead now. He died a few years ago. I went to see him speak at SAG one night because mm-hmm. he had a book that came out. And I was so surprised to find out he's like really short. Oh, yeah. Really tiny, <laughs> little wiry guy, but he's one of those guys that smoked his whole life and wears sunglasses inside and yeah. still has this voice <laughs> and always wearing a cowboy hat. <laughs> nice. <You know? laughs> he just seems like a wonderful man, too. And reading about him on Wikipedia first, uh, but apparently he was a cigarette model before he was ever wow. involved in Hollywood sense. at all. If you take one look at him, you go, yeah. Marlboro Man kind of He was thing. just yeah. on yeah. billboards smoking cigarettes. But really short? I don't associate yeah. that with Marlboro Man. I yeah. know, but you, don't, you wouldn't know it, though. Because yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's an unsung hero whose name completely escapes me, but there's one person who took all those Marlboro Man photos oh, that really? way, and they're pretty damn good photos. Yeah. They stick in my yeah, mind. Yeah. All the like beautiful billboards yeah. of a cowboy in the yeah. snow and shit. Yeah, yeah. But while we're talking stunts and Smokey and the Bandit, did you see number two, Smokey and the Bandit two? Uh-huh. How was it? It's it's <laughs> it's depressing actually because sure. um, so Sally Field and Burt Reynolds were dating in the first one or they began dating and they were breaking up during the making of the second one. Uh, okay. And there are scenes where you can feel the tension between them because uh, they're also struggling as characters. It's Burr Reynolds' film. Let It Be, if you will. It, yeah, <laughs> it is. So it's this thing that should be an outright comedy and there are really tender, sad moments that feel too real to fit yeah. in the film. And then Weird. Dom DeLuise is in it. <laughs> and so it, it has Trying to capture real, the Gleason energy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, he's in it too. Gleason okay. goes all the way to the All end. The way through, in fact, yeah. he plays three characters in either the second or the third. I can't remember. Wow. He plays his like New York cop brother and a gay Mountie. And <laughs> it's, that one's really <laughs> tough to stomach because it's pure stereotype. Yeah. But the second one is interesting to watch because tonally it just goes up and down and is odd. And it feels like you watch the first one and you want to come back for that and yeah. realize like nothing lasts. Nothing gold nothing can stay. Nothing gold can stay. Stay yeah. gold, pony boy. Yeah. I can't. Oh, I know. The segue I was groping for is... Debbie Evans is basically oh, stunt woman? every yeah. woman you've ever seen drive something. Is she, did in she a double thing. Sally Field in that? It doesn't say who she doubled, but she did stunts on number two, Smoking the Bandit that's 2. That's got to be, yeah. And that's not why I bring her up today. But she's been working since 1973. She's still working. She has been in over 200 movies and shows. She has done stunts on Matrix Reloaded. There's also some where you're like, what was the stunt in that? The jerk <laughs> chips, that makes sense. I know the jerk. It's that female acrobatic motorcycle. Yep, going through yeah. the flaming yeah. hoop. Yeah. Murder, she wrote. What was the stunt on that? I don't <laughs> know. Some dexterous <laughs> typing. Yeah. <laughs> growing pains. But then you Those jump the ahead. actual growing pains And it's she did. every Fast and the Furious movie she's done. Oh, my God. The Dukes of Hazard. But is she doing the stunts or is she coordinator now? She's actually doing them still? Stunt player, stunt performer, That's stunts amazing. are all her. Yeah. That's and stunt great. driver. Yeah. yeah. She's still doing it. Terminator 2, she's Sarah Connor. Because uh, I imagine it's 
got to be a boys club stunt driving. Yeah, sure. So she really has cornered the market pretty much for any badass woman who's like sliding a motorcycle under a truck is always Debbie Evans. I I could just go on. It's insane. Literally 200 movies and they're all major movies. Like if you look her up, one of the first pictures of her is her in the gear that Trinity wears in the Matrix because she's Trinity in the Matrix, which is like all fighting and chasing. And and if you watch that iconic freeway scene that's notable for a lot of reasons, the set itself again, was really uh, groundbreaking at the time, but just watch it realizing, which you don't do instinctually, it's not real, but it is real. The driving person who's driving is really doing that with a motorcycle, and it's Debbie Evans, and just watch it and be impressed because, God, it's like a work of art in its own right, being able to pull off some of these stunts. Yeah, because I remember uh, watching the Grindhouse thing Tarantino did and being like, oh, there's a stunt person who's also acting in it and is kind of a character and yeah. they're celebrating that. He must have invented that. No, <laughs> Debbie Evans has been the stunt person in every movie forever. Yeah. Hal Needham was story by and director and stuntman on one movie, Smokey and the Bandit. Like It's an amazing profession where a few people have made all of our favorite <laughs> I movies realize all she's, the time. she's also one of the most useful nodes in Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon ever. Oh, oh sure. I mean, who else has <laughs> yeah. workaholics, demolition man, and growing pains? You could go to anyone like you yeah, could get yeah. anywhere from there wait so Hal Needham did stunts on Smokey and the Bandit I believe so yeah. I could just picture that where he's directing and it's like oh fuck it I'll do it Here, get, someone get them <laughs> behind the camera yeah. and he just one take Needham <laughs> what I always wonder also about stunt people who are in hundreds of films Chris Nolan gets away with it all the time as we've talked about before on the show but when you're watching a movie your brain shuts off so much it's it's startling like how can this one woman look like 200 different yeah. characters, but she does and you yeah. don't notice, it's fine. There's a, a Bond stuntman that was famous named Bob Simmons. I think <laughs> it was him, and he was tiny. He was just the littlest guy. Yeah. And if it was, I think it was him, but he, some other short guy, if it wasn't him, doubled for Jaws. The, the shark? That really is tough. <laughs> 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 it was just an enormous yeah. man, and there are these long <laughs> shots of Jaws jumping from one cable car to another cable car in... Brazil and Rio and Wait. it's just him and it's just a little guy and you don't oh, really man. you don't really <laughs> notice it. Yeah. Yeah. The internet is mean and I've noticed that occasionally there was this one post going around where they picked out the times you can tell in Buffy the Vampire Slayer that just the larger stunt woman is being Sarah Michelle Geller because uh-huh. like, she's just taller. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. It's like, oh, in this fight, suddenly she grew half a foot. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But like, especially now, but even then, that was such a hard thing to find, like matching humans for these terrible yeah. even situations. gender, because in um, Live and Let Die, there's a point where Roger Moore flips the character of Rosie and she just clearly turns into a man. A short a man who's <laughs> a gymnast. Not short. Yeah, just, just like stocky, broad-shouldered fella with a backless <laughs> dress. He does a backflip and just grunts. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, Debbie Evans actually uh, doubled for Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in the sure. movie about his life. So she can do it all. Yeah, man. She can do anything. Yeah. Speaking of stuff, we could talk about uh, Vic Armstrong. Oh, yeah. Vic Armstrong is like most Harrison Ford roles you know of. Right. Kind of like how Hal, ne- Hal Needham was a lot of Great Bird Reynolds's, yeah. you know? Uh, didn't pronounce that right. Uh, Vic Armstrong <laughs> That's is- your show. <laughs> a bunch of Burt Reynolds's team up. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> Reynolds Force. Vic Armstrong is in the Indiana Jones movies. He was Timothy Dalton in Flash Gordon. He was also on Her Majesty's Secret Service for George Lazenby, and he was Christopher Reeve in the first two Supermans. 
God. Just I mean, one like guy. Play, I have his book. I haven't read it, but it, yeah, he's everyone from our youth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's insane that he can tell his friends and family, like, you know, I'm Superman and the Indiana Jones. <laughs> or I did all the hard parts. And no one knows roles. his name. I yeah, know. I don't. I've. Yeah. It's already escaped me. Vic What's his Armstrong. name? Vic Armstrong. I mean, his his yeah. name oh is Armstrong God. for crying yeah. out loud. Yeah. yeah, and Vic. That's pretty yeah. cool. Uh, yeah, Vic. The uh, fight master at UCSD theater while I was there was named Brian Fightmaster. Like, Jesus. what is the are what are the odds? Me? Yeah, no, <laughs> and that's real. Yeah, Brett was there with me at the time. He remembers. Brian Fightmaster. It might have been Kevin Fightmaster, <laughs> but I'm right about the Fightmaster part. That part I remember. Yeah, the other part is forgettable. After <laughs> yeah, that. yeah. Right. you're a fraud. It's yeah. Tom Fightmaster. It does seem like when Vic Armstrong was born, they're like, "Son, you will be the, all the heroes." <laughs> yeah. Well, he's also kind of like where if you Google Debbie Evans, it's Trinity too. You know, uh, there's a famous picture of Vic Armstrong where it's him with Harrison Ford, and they're both Indiana Jones. And yeah. they're just like, ah. Yeah. And apparently, Harrison Ford signed one of them with, "If you learn." to talk I'm in deep trouble which is yeah. Great. yeah and I love that Harrison Ford was just discovered for that role because he was like doing carpentry at George Lucas's house right yeah. so it's weird that he's like you could have been me man yeah. if you were slightly more natural we'd be swapped but right. or I'm gonna go like, be Harrison Ford or if you were like better with a belt sander or don't whatever. bogart yeah. that shit yeah <laughs> or, or maybe worse maybe the carpentry was horrible and he had to get him out of the house you know oh yeah, yeah. I'll look I'll give you a roll just that's a great off. origin story as Lucas is like look this is just a, like a serial pulp movie it's not gonna go anywhere get him out of my hair you wanna be in a movie kid <laughs> he's that stop butchering my or kitchen like, yeah. so afraid to ask someone to stop that he has to <laughs> yeah George Lucas famously polite and not a <laughs> well, I can bring up someone. Please. Uh, Barbara Broccoli, who's now the producer of all the Bond films. There are basically two, and they're the children of, in one form or another, of Cubby Broccoli. And one is his stepson, Michael Wilson, and then his natural daughter, Barbara Broccoli. And they worked together for years. Michael was like writing all of these scripts for a while, and it was involved from a young age. But Barbara's a little bit younger, and she came up through, like, the Roger Moore years and then eventually was took over during the Brosnan years, but really, I think, was very instrumental in bringing Daniel Craig in the direction that that turn of the series took. Yeah. And so I think she's invaluable for that yeah. reason because Casino Royale is my <laughs> it's favorite. Fun, it's almost film. like serving in a presidential administration. Or yeah. You're like, well, this person you don't know has been there yeah. for, since Reagan. And it's like right. and she oversaw the Brosnan years. She <laughs> took us into the future with, yeah, Craig. It's great. She's <laughs> unique in a sense because she, you know, other than producing occasional small films, I think, but also a lot of Broadway theater and West End theater. Okay. She's basically just works on this franchise. It's the family business. It's privately run. Yeah. She's like a pro Proto Kathleen Kennedy, what she is now for the Star Wars universe. I was about to bring up Kathleen as yeah, sort of the yeah. opposite, just on that part of the spectrum of like Kathleen Kennedy, if you don't know, is the producer who made every movie. She's made every movie. Yeah, I mean, everything she produced every major movie. In, basically. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> I think Kathleen Kennedy is a little bit starting to be well known now that Disney owns Star Wars and so they need a producer face to be like, and these she's, are the films. Yeah. But yeah. she's been doing stuff since the 70s that yeah. you know. She's helped produce some of the biggest stuff ever. She makes many of the important decisions about the Star Wars universe and how it's unfolded and shaped. And that's from the beginning. She was telling George Lucas ideas. She picked E.T.'s eyeballs. Mm. It's just a good factoid. <laughs> Who among Spielberg us was like, yeah, you pick which <laughs> of the eyes E.T.'s going to have. So she was can... married to Frank Marshall, the producer of like cool. Raiders. Okay, I didn't right? know that. Am I right about that? I think so. Yeah, she was. Okay. Uh, Raiders, Poltergeist, Alive, Twister. 
including and like Persepolis and Ponyo, the Studio Ghibli movie. Yeah. So just all over the board. Rogue One, she's still incredibly active. She's in the news yeah. right doing now, it. especially because those uh, oh. Lord and Miller quit the Han Solo movie with creative differences yes. with her. With her specifically. Yeah. About tone, and I'm so curious. Well, that's what yeah, I like about her. So. Is I also hear like she's a boss. Like she. She worked her way up, everyone agrees, by just refusing to not talk at meetings. I think she was like Spielberg's yeah. personal assistant or something. Yeah, it was her first job when she was Spielberg's secretary. She kept just interrupting in meetings with, with ideas, and they'd be like— And they were like, ah, that's good. You did interrupt, but you're not wrong. <laughs> and they did that so many times, they're like, obviously you shouldn't be a personal assistant. Yeah, you're yeah. now— you just tell us what to do with the movie. <laughs> yeah, and now she's produced over 90 major films Jesus. with a collective gross of over $11 billion Jeez, and wonderful. over 120 Academy Award nominations. I don't know if I've seen that many movies, yeah. just period. <laughs> like, that's amazing. I'm so curious about this Han Solo movie thing because I think all signs are she knows what she's doing and she's not just a studio head that's like sure. looking for money or the marketing side of things. I'm sure she's really guiding and protecting the tone of that film. So I wonder if they were just as pure speculation, like just trying to make it too comedy and maybe self-referential mm. like they do. Yeah, and, yeah. And she wants to keep it more like a Western. I hope that story comes out one day. They're like, right, they're or more like a Kurosawa it, again. Because if people don't know all the details, uh, Lord and Miller, who were the duo behind uh, the Lego movie and uh, the 21 Jump Street reboot, sure. they were directing the Han Solo standalone movie. They've been removed from the project, and there's like just rumors going around about some kind of creative <laughs> differences between Lawrence Kasdan and his son and uh, Kathleen Kennedy. And they were removed with three and a half weeks left to go. That's unprecedented. They had shot for four some well, are they yeah. Then are they extending the shoot to shoot additional material? They or are, are so they, they like, had five, okay. They had yeah. three weeks left and then five weeks of reshoots built in from the beginning like they Just in case. Like they so now do, Ron yeah. Howard's officially taking over. Oh, wow. I mean, that's right. not a bad way to go. I guess. <laughs> I mean, from Willow to yeah. Solo or keeping it in the yeah. Lucasfilm family. Yeah. Yeah. Also, Tom Hanks is Han Solo now. <laughs> yes. It's very exciting, I think. I would uh, love that, actually. Great direction. Really liking it. Colin Hanks murders him on a bridge. Um, <laughs> a lot of layers. I think that's what's so fascinating about the behind-the-scenes discussions, and especially on the, the bigger the budget, the more people, and the more people, the less we'll ever know, and it's all speculation. But, like, and this is what this is what I tell myself to not get depressed. When you see a movie that they spent $100 million on and the script is bad, like Suicide Squad, like literally plot points don't match yeah. up. And you wonder like, like I know so many people you could have paid 100 bucks and they would have tweaked it and the yeah. plot would have been coherent at least. And you ask, how can that happen when you're spending so much money? Well, the reason is not that there's too few people who can write working on it. Mm -hmm. There's too many people who can write working on it. <laughs> and their bosses like frantically cobble together different scenes and there's like a political war over who's guiding the direction of the movie and if someone or a faction of people don't win and provide a cohesive vision you often end up with these movies that feel like well that was like nine movies put together so yeah my dream is to know what the state of play is at the ranch and like is Kath when Kathleen Kennedy talks is it sacrosanct or what are the other political parties I care as much about right. that as I do about like Steve Bannon influencing Trump I'm very like <laughs> I'm, I'm the same who in the room yeah, is making the I calls I yeah. Know. yeah I'm waiting for the book on both of those scenarios <laughs> yeah it was a revelation to me that SNL book that came out when I was growing up that was just like that unabashed behind the scenes the oral history one here's yeah. like an oral history of 20 oh, yeah. years of amazing stories like Bill Murray taking a swing at Chevy Chase and stuff and I was yeah. just ever since I've been fascinated 
I'm never fascinated with like a celebrity because of their fame level, but someone whose work affects me. I'm infinitely, I need to know what they were thinking when they yeah. did that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and not to in any way plug my own podcast, but please I do. was there too. Is That's the reason why I love doing it. It has nothing to do with me. In fact, I have learned that more than ever because I just had some <laughs> guest hosts on and I love listening. And it's purely because you're getting these people telling you stories you uh-huh. haven't heard before and they're lesser players in the movie usually. So they yes. have probably a more realistic perspective on what was going on. And it's the little detail stories like that that I just love. Yeah. Like, something about their costume, like it was aligned with burlap and I was itching the whole time or whatever. Like it, it that stuff fascinates me to no end, the insider perspective. Yeah. I really wasn't trying to No, no, it's great. a wonderful that's, show. That's why Was I it on your it. show I, that I heard about, yeah, the story about on the set of The Revenant? Where every time they pass, they're like, fuck you. Oh, yeah, fuck you, uh, something Bill or whatever. Character name. Yeah. And he's like, yeah. God damn it, character name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and one time he didn't do it, and then he got really upset. Yeah, he came to me. He's like, yeah, something like. Uh, I can't say fuck y- you. Y- if y- you <laughs> my character depends on you saying. <laughs> <laughs> saying you son of a bitch, Bill, back to me. Yeah. Was this, it was part of like Tom Hardy's process? Yeah. I, I don't know this episode. Yeah, like saying. this guy, Joshua Burge, who was just this most wonderful guy, and he was talking about how he – and Tom Hardy had this exchange in character. Whenever they passed each other on set, they'd say, fuck you, whatever, Wild Bill or whatever it was. Yeah. And he'd say, fuck you too or something. Trapper Bill. And he didn't yeah. do it back one time just thinking whatever reason. And <laughs> Tom Hardy came out to him and was like, I rely on you to do that. You know, he was joking. <laughs> <laughs> that was really their only rapport, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Stories like that are amazing to me. Even when I'm like, well, that person's dumb, but I love knowing that yeah. Brando has an endless well of them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In Streetcar Named Desire, he had the costume department cut the pockets out of his pants so he could fondle himself oh, in scenes. Because he's like, this is a guy who wants to touch his dick when he wants to <laughs> touch his dick I don't want a barrier there yeah so there's scenes in Streetcar where he like scratches his balls through his pants uh-huh. and then he thought was a character choice <laughs> well I gotta ask because I have a fun factoid about it how did your fascination with squibbing begin and do you already know the origin story of squibs in film I don't know that I do is it it's not Bonnie and Clyde is it no it's well, I had to look it up. This is a truly unsung hero. There's an old Polish film called, like, Poketwak. I can't. I'm sorry. Pol- Pol- that, that's I'm sorry for our large <laughs> contingent of Polish people listening. But the uh, special effects supervisor, Kazimierz Kutz, is the first person to simulate a gunshot wound on that. film. No. Yeah. yeah. And they literally— Which is a squib, if folks don't know. It's like a black yeah. jacket yeah. to set up a fake gunshot. Yeah. Yes. And, Matt, if you listen, I was there, too. You'll find out quickly that Matt is fascinated by squibbing and squib technology. And you have a great YouTube video, The Squibbing, where you yourself get squibbed. How much did that hurt, by the way? It that's didn't the, hurt at that's all. That's, of course, the question. But they kept telling me it was going to hurt. It was going to hurt. It was loud, and that was scary. It right. Was really loud. Yeah. But I didn't feel it at all. So it has huh. these little leather, like, suede things padding. Yeah. And otherwise, it itself, the squib, is in a little brass casing. So you're protected by metal and yes. leather. There's very little pressure. He, the guy told me it was going to hurt. It didn't yeah. hurt. I've played paintball. I've Well, hell, it's, I've made my own squibs as a kid, like with sure. <laughs> yeah, model rocket yeah. igniters and firecrackers, and they hurt more than this. I shouldn't have been doing that. No, because I've heard yeah. they well, hurt too, and I've heard paintball is the parallel. Like it's like, yeah. you know, like it hurts like that. It did, it, maybe, I don't know. I mean, I was shot with five at once, and I yeah, machine gun feel, style. But it could have also been like I, your adrenaline's ramped up, yeah, and yeah. the noise is so loud that maybe you don't. Did you have any red marks or bruises? No, I had stain from the blood. Right, of course. Yeah, 
but no red marks from huh. the user. And it was a dream. Well, to contrast, <laughs> it sounds like the technology's come a long way. To contrast, the very first time a squib was used, Casimir's Coots opened a <laughs> stick of dynamite, poured red food coloring and caro syrup into a condom. This can only end well. Stuck right. some dynamite powder in there, taped it to a guy, and put a fuse in it up his sleeve, lit it off camera, and said, roll now, shoot it now. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's essentially how I started. So condom filled with blood with yeah. some dynamite in yeah, it. Yeah, I remember asking oh. my mom to, as a young boy, I need you to buy me condoms for these things I'm making. Well, here's what I don't get. <laughs> Isn't the whole point of a condom that it's designed to not break as much as possible? Well, I think Why that's do essential. Slow and sensual, fast and sensual motion, but sure. not an actual. Well, explosion. I don't know what your like ejection force is, but <laughs> let's just say I've been scribbed before. I just think it's interesting that someone was on a set and like, we need something that can explode easily and like blood will spray out. I know a condom. They aren't are those the made to thing. not break though. They well, are. we'll put some dynamite in there. I will say they Solved. are the perfect thing because you get them flesh colored, so they look like skin when they break apart. <laughs> And cellophane or that sort of thing doesn't yeah. as much, yeah. And that's, it, condoms are actually all over the early days of special effects. My favorite, the other story I love of that is the original King Kong, the scene where they're in the valley witnessing dinosaurs fight each other. The way they did that effect was it's all miniatures, and then they needed to actually project several layers of previously shot film of miniatures on little tiny movie screens. And when they cut movie screen material down to that size, it would wrinkle like it wasn't the right grain. And someone was like, I know. And they cut the ends off a condom, slid it lengthwise, and unfolded it. Wow. And they're like, it's a little square movie screen. So those dinosaurs are like fighting, literally fighting over a condom. <laughs> See, this is like when people argue against the space race and you say, well, that, or space exploration, well, it brings us all these great inventions. Same thing with birth yeah. control. It gives us all these That's secondary <laughs> uses. Yes. Squibs and giant, tiny little movies. Regulates my menstrual cycle. Uh-huh. A lot of good yeah. side effects. Yeah. yeah. Also, how many hours do you guys think Ben Burt has spent just on doing <laughs> condoms, snapping condoms, playing with oh, condoms? Yeah. Plenty. Like, I'm sure he's explored all the sonic possibilities <laughs> of those things. <laughs> I also also love imagining, yeah, any effects supervisor trying to make like any horror, like a brain exploding out of a skull. There's so many ways to experiment with what that could be. Yeah. Yeah. You're at home cracking melons, filling <laughs> condoms with cottage cheese and seeing what it looks like. It's just a bizarre job. Art direction for film and effects especially is such a cool job because it's like, it's one of the few remaining jobs where someone will say like, there's just a goal, accomplish yeah. it, build a contraption if you have to. We just saw a great production of Sirens of Titan, the Kurt Vonnegut book, as a play. Yeah. Are you familiar with that book? No, uh-uh. They have this character, Salo, who's described as like his head is like polyhedron on a set of gimbals and his feet are inflatable balls. And we're like, how are they going to do this? And the costume had to be like a wooden robot that uh-huh. someone's inside. Yeah. And I just love problem solving on sets. Yeah, it's I so awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I remember one time I bought condoms to make scripts and I was grown at this sure. point. But it was also my buddy Jesse's birthday, and as a joke, I bought him a Hello Kitty cake. So I'm at the store, and the only two things I'm buying <laughs> oh my God. are condoms and a Hello Kitty cake, and it didn't occur to me until I'm paying, and I was like, God, this looks so horrible. Yeah. Well, we, in the early days, as everyone did, had just a <laughs> sketch troupe, and 
went to do a scene about a kidnapping. So, of course, we bought, like, a kitchen knife, rope, like, alcohol, and a rag. And then the and person's like, bunch of magazines to I don't know if I can lows. let you get all this stuff. And we're like, why the hell no? Oh, of course. That's <laughs> very thoughtful of you. <laughs> <laughs> Buying props. I'm glad we don't buy our own props anymore. It's often That's embarrassing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I get a lot of hats lately, so it's very nice. To the, yeah. Oh, yeah, helmet history. Yeah. You'd have to go buy a new historic helmet every week at the same shop right. and they'd be like who are you weirdo <laughs> stop buying different helmets we know you're fucking the helmets okay <laughs> can I bring up Ellen Chenoweth yeah yeah I want to talk Ellen Chenoweth because again it's an area we haven't talked about that I think people don't appreciate how much this invisible art completely guides your perception of media. Ellen Chenoweth is arguably the most prolific casting director of all time. So obviously, uh, and again, this is what's so speculative about these movies. If you're Kubrick, the director probably has all the say over the casting and the casting director is just kind of there to like facilitate the process. But often the casting director has a lot of say over like, this is the direction. We want to go with all no-name people because we want that effect where you're not distracted by a star or we want all stars. The point is, Start looking for Ellen Chenoweth's name in movie credits because she's cast every Coen Brothers movie, all the Men in Black movies, Doubt. Analyze this and meet the parents, which means she was the person on Earth who had the idea, Yeah, I think Robert De Niro has a comedy yeah. phase coming on. That's she's responsible for us seeing him as... That made me realize casting directors are so often responsible for... Uh, like, it was probably Tarantino himself, but, you know, whatever human had the idea... Travolta. Travolta needs to get reinvented, and I think he can, and this is the movie for that. That's an amazing concept. Like, just knowing who links up correctly with the right role can change everything. And my favorite Chenoweth example is De Niro, because I just never would have imagined him as funny. But she's also one of these people who goes back unbelievably far. She cast Diner, and she cast Terms of Endearment. Is she also— And she's still working. Is she Scorsese's— I think so. Let me confirm that. Now, that that's crazy about Terms of Endearment because apparently Burt Reynolds was offered the Jack Nicholson role and he turned it down to do Stroker Ace because he was in love with Lonnie Anderson. Mm. And it would have probably changed the face of his career. Wow, yeah. He seems to make a lot of love like, decisions, Burt. Yeah. But we got Stroker Ace. <laughs> I was sure did. <laughs> that's probably a Hal Needham picture for all I know. Um, it's complicated. There's a great documentary. Grand Torino. Oh, she's also, uh, she's Eastwood's oh. casting director as well, it looks like. She does most of the Eastwoods. Have you seen that documentary on HBO about the f- women casting directors and how most of the big casting directors are women and it's all about their process and everything? No. I can't remember what it's called, but it's really good. Oh, that's cool. Sounds I amazing. did notice yeah. that trend when I was researching. Like, I literally just Googled, like, who are the most legendary casting directors? Yeah, and there's yeah. a lot of females. People listening at home, like if you're a huge movie fan, you probably know like, oh, directors are so important. Writers are so important. Editors are so important. But like, especially in TV, there's a saying that I've heard that TV's all writing and casting. You know probably the names of some famous TV writing people, but TV, and it also applies to movies, like casting is huge. Yeah, huge, And yeah. it's a faceless entity in basically all cases, uh-huh. if you're as from a fan's perspective. Right. Yeah. And if you have ever been on the auditioning side of a table... You also have to have a ama- or if you're good at it, amazing bedside manner and like it's a very. Yeah. You're dealing with people at the most tense that they're going to be that day. <laughs> yeah. It's like a tough job. It, yeah. it is. It is really, really comforting when you come in and they're nice. Right. And, and yeah, they they aren't always. Sometimes they're bored or having a bad day. And I imagine it's numbing. <laughs> like for a big movie, you know, they must see for some of the roles. 
a hundred tapes of someone doing yeah. the same sides over and over. Yeah. So it's an amazing skill to still know, like, that's your show. <laughs> <laughs> and all these actors you deal with are, drove across Los Angeles traffic, and then they came to, like, probably a very bare room that you're in. Yeah, and yeah. It's, it could be a very lame experience for them that makes them not seem as good as they are. So yeah. hopefully you make it nice. Yeah. This is us just bitching about yeah, our great lives mad. and entertainment now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I had to get up at 10 to be here today. Yeah. The Jackal, Wag the Dog, The Sphere, The Horse Whisperer. It's complicated. Mona Lisa Smile. I also just love the breadth. Because you don't get that with, obviously, a director. Their voice is, you know, a human is, is what they are. And the director's voice always comes through or tends to. But when you're something like the art designer or the casting director, you can influence across every genre of movie, yeah. which is so cool to I wish do. there was a world where you got to see your favorite films but had different casting directors just to see, like, oh, films yeah. would be better and worse. Yeah. And just different, yeah. Yeah, anyone but Kevin Spacey in Seven <laughs> would be weird, but interesting <laughs> to see. There's, I well, can't do it off the top of my head, but we did do an episode or at least an article once about people who turned it down where you're like, that's truly fascinating if it had been that person instead, you know? Yeah. Well, also, like, some of those movies you listed for Ellen Chenoweth, with, like, Men in Black jumped to mind as one where if you don't have that pair of people, I don't know what the movie right. is. Yeah. Like, maybe it doesn't fall right. apart, yeah. but it really just works because it's Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith. Yeah, and I'm like, wondering, there's probably for every one of those, there's a hundred that didn't work but would have worked with the right casting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And ones that don't work, but I don't blame the casting. Like, she cast toys. Oh. And when I think back, I'm like, the casting was good. It wasn't the casting's yeah. fault. <laughs> That's interesting because it has true colorblind <laughs> casting, right? Because LL Cool J yeah. plays Robin Williams' natural brother? I they? think natural? so. Are they? It's been a while so. since I watched Toys, but I think so. Yeah, I remember thinking that at the time. That issue, yeah. and it was rare. You see that a lot in theater, but you don't in right. film. Right. Yeah. Uh, that Bob Dylan movie did that recently. Oh, I'm not I there. Was, I'm yeah. not there. That yeah. It was cool. That was The technique it. really worked, I thought, in that. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're also they're like fragmenting his life story in different ways people have seen it. So then sometimes yeah. it's Kate Blanchett. But it was like, yeah, Bob whoever we wanted to cast based on their vibe plays Bob Dylan at this point in his life. And we didn't cast it based on looking at them at all. <laughs> Gender, race, it's cool. Yeah, and a lot of your favorite casting directors, like like you said, Michael, they'll, they'll be working on such a range of stuff. This is anecdotal, but I have a friend who was working for a casting company, and I one time I'd be like, how's work going? They'd be like, yeah, we're doing this and that TV show and these other things. And then the next time I was like, how's work going? And they were like, we're doing Force Awakens. Uh, it's pretty busy. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. I bet it is. Because uh, they're just up to stuff all the time. Yeah, and so there's, Imagine, yeah, like yeah. even one day or probably multiple days, yeah, I'm screening yeah. extras to be Rebels just in the base. Right. We're going to see 800 people. <laughs> <laughs> that's got to, yeah, that's got to be tough. Yeah, and they're making crucial decisions for stuff you like. Yeah. yeah. In fact, one of the cinematographers we work with a lot on Cracked videos used to be an effects wizard and worked on the pod race sequence in episode one, notably designed some of the pods and worked on Anakin's pod. And uh, afterwards, he said it was an incredibly well-paying job, as you'd expect. But after it was over, he spent all the money going to a, a, an in-house rehab treatment for carpal tunnel syndrome in both wrists for six oh months. Oh, my God. And that's when he was like, I'm going to be a director of photography instead because my wrists are just shot. Oh. Uh, so that's a, But that's a great, like, 
Wow. Swan song. The yeah. pod race oh, yeah. sequence is fabulous. Yeah. Well, also to be like, how's work? Oh, I'm just making the thing everybody knows. You know? Right. <laughs> but also it's literally crippling me. Right. And I, I hope you I like can't it. Tell you anything about it. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, that yeah, the, the casting was under wraps. Yeah, was... And I can't imagine working <laughs> yeah. on the visuals for the pod race and having it come out and have everyone just go, meh. I, I didn't like it as much as the original Star Wars. And you're like, did you see the effects? <laughs> I worked so hard on the effects. <laughs> <laughs> they were pretty good. Well done, yeah. Matt. <laughs> yeah, Matt. Off of science fiction, uh, there's one guy I want to talk about. Uh, his name's Gene Kuhn. Gene Kuhn was in a lot of ways responsible for Star Trek and beyond that responsible for like, because there had been this before, but like science fiction with humor in it being a major thing because uh-huh. he came on to the original Star Trek series, 13 episodes into the first season. And then from there ended up producing it, writing a lot of episodes, doing passes on all the scripts that he didn't write. And at one point in the second season, Gene Roddenberry left for a while to do something else. And Gene Kuhn was just making the show and he didn't create the show, but he came up with Klingons, Khan, the Prime Directive, Jeez. Starfleet <laughs> Command, the name of the Federation. He also did the initial writing where people said, I think the Q oh, continuum as well. I don't know how much he I read that on gen. a fan site, but I could be yeah. wrong, yeah. Well, he did. He wrote. Or they could be wrong. <laughs> he wrote back and forths that made people say, oh, Spock and McCoy off of each other is funny. That's a thing we can do. Uh, sure. Early on, like er- the types of scenes they're going to do. He yeah. invented some of the grammar, yeah. Because apparently early, early on, it was like, oh, Kirk and Spock will be the main characters, and McCoy was just one of the crew. And then he made McCoy funny off of Spock, and they were like, oh, we can do that. Uh, right. And like steered the show toward doing the episode with Mud, the episode with the Tribbles. Uh-huh. And like apparently Roddenberry saw the Tribbles one and was like, that's too silly. You know, and we never would have got it if not for this guy Gene Kuhn, who who nobody knows of as like a creator of it. You know, Gene the Elder and Gene the Younger. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> he go on a couple do? of genes. He ended up. He went on to work for I think it was to catch a thief. But so also uh, partway through the second season of Star Trek, he needed to take a break because apparently he was so involved in every aspect of every episode that he like broke down and like started taking uh, amphetamines to like keep up and stuff like that. Oh, he it. was very committed, but then he he went on to write some other TV shows, but also even like during the third season did uncredited work on it because he loved it. Wow. He was so about Star Trek and nobody yeah. knows who he is. And uh, then that has been foundational to, he got, I, I don't know, all sci yeah. ever, <laughs> uh, at least in TV and movies. Did Definitely. he work on any of the films? No, not that I know. Oh, yeah, he kind of. I he, thought the first one only. I did read a brief have, bio yeah. of him last night, but my brain's overflowing with these. But <laughs> it could, it was I thought he worked on the team. first yeah. one. I, I could be wrong, but yeah, yeah, he to got me, phased he, out fairly early on. <laughs> well, and to me, somebody like in some ways, Giger, where like his alien work is so iconic and so important that he has a lot of secondary effect from there. Yeah. You know, I think Gene Kuhn has a lot of secondary, like oh, humorous mismatched people in science fiction. Oh that yeah, should be a thing. and people who are such a huge influence on the craftsmen in their field in the industry. Yeah. You don't need to know their name. Everyone who does that job knows their name. Yeah, so, like, yeah. they are secondarily influential throughout the world. Like, yeah. I feel that way about Godly and Cream of 10CC. I saw that in your list. Yeah. And I was like, because I love the song Cry. Yes. Godly and Cream. Oh, God, I love that song. Yeah. I, I, I know very little about them. But. Oh, well, they the band 10CC is, like, Known by musicians, period. But I rarely meet civilians who know them or let alone are huge fans of them. But 
Musicians like will cite them as influences. They invented several instruments that are still used. There's one called like the Gizmotron. Mm-hmm. That's a thing you put on your guitar that vibrates the strings. It makes a very particular sound. People still use it on albums today. They invented the quote unquote instrument, or it's really just like a clever technique of recording your voice at a different note or an instrument at a different note to every switch on a volume switchboard and then playing the switchboard by moving. And oh. like Ben Folds famously uses that instrument on some of his albums and credits them with it. They also, besides being in this like seminal band that did all this amazing like audio experimentation that musicians all like cite and credit, it was like how if you were ever in Frank Zappa's band, I people was. were like, yeah, people <laughs> were like, you have intense like cred. Yeah. Because he was famously like not a huge success, but worked his band yeah. like dogs and demanded perfection. 10CC were like that, and they just invented all these studio techniques that became seminal. And then when music videos started happening, I'm not going to read them, but go to their Wikipedia and just see what music videos they directed, because it's all of them. Like, they they are credited with directing one of the first three videos. There's arguments about what was the yeah. first video that was aired. A lot of people think it was Video Killed the Radio Star, but there's people who are like, well, this counts as a music video, and it was aired on the Carson show at this time or whatever. But of the first 100 music videos to exist, they maybe directed 40 to 50 of them. And this was at a time when people were having trouble with music videos because they didn't understand when the narrative broke and it cut away to the band playing in like a warehouse, they'd Uh be like, I don't understand. Did they teleport to a warehouse? (laughs) This was legitimately a problem people had. So I don't think you can overestimate how MTV and music videos specifically pioneered a whole bunch of pacing and editing techniques that now influence how trailers feel and how movies, I mean, Baby Driver is going to feel like a bunch of music videos in a good way and Suicide Squad did it in a bad way. So like, (laughs) plus their names were Godly and Cream. Yes. I mean, come on. And the band name 10cc, the origin is the average man ejaculates nine cc's of sperm in one orgasm. So they were very seminal in many ways. Oh, God. I'm hitting this hard. Also, (laughs) as music video directors, they sort of invented the grammar of we're going to have a little short story that is thematically appropriate to the song but doesn't necessarily legit, like, just literalize the song, and we're going to intercut it with footage of the band playing. And that, I just can't overstate the influence of deciding that's how music videos will I look. I miss that because now yeah. it's a director comes in and goes, I have this concept I'm going to tack on to this. That I've always had as just a short film. Yeah. yeah, right. It's been that way for years. But. <laughs> okay, Godly and Cream music videos, some music videos of note that they directed and did the concept for. An Englishman in New York, oh. Cry, of course, which famously... <laughs> is a video of their faces in black and white morphing into other faces, including Gonzo the Muppet is in the video oh, for some I've reason. I've never seen this. I don't, Wait, which, and Cry by which band? 10CC. Oh, yeah. This yeah. Is when or yeah, actually after yeah. they went solo. So yeah. it's by Godly and Cream, technically. Okay. Michael Jackson, the video, black or white, he credited them for, yes, that music video is what made me want to have a shot where the face morphs. How do they morph it? it that's then? what's funny is it's just shots with a vignette from the center out oh, very like slowly yeah. and forcing people to keep their head exactly, you know, in the <laughs> same spot. Hmm. So it's not really an effect, but, you know, gave Michael Jackson the idea of now that we have computers, let's do it for real. Girls on Film, Duran oh. Duran. Heart of the Moment by Asia. Oh, God. Um, Victims by Culture Club. Kiss the Bride, Elton John. Herbie Hancock's Rocket. Oh, Leave It <laughs> oh. by Yes. Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Two Tribes, the famous wrestling one. 
Hip to be square oh. by Huey Lewis in the news. And they're yeah. just amazing. So they invented so they, instruments. They invented production techniques. They produced a bunch of albums. Their band was very influential. And they invented the modern music video. That's amazing that they were involved in every element of being a band and doing music. I just really respect Renaissance people who you like couldn't stop. Especially people, because I have a bit of a hipster edge, I guess, who never made it. You have never heard big. someone say about themselves, I have a hipster edge. I've got a bit of a hipster edge. But it makes you cool. seem dangerous. <laughs> In a hipster way. I thought it was the knife dick right. that made me seem dangerous. Well, it's the artisanal knife dick. I call it my hipster edge. Yeah, it's very... <laughs> you couldn't tell from our description before, but it's actually a finely crafted uh, wood handle yeah. with some nice curly cues on it. <laughs> Yeah. Artisanal little cheese knife for it, a dick. It influenced <laughs> a lot of knife dicks from there, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll keep it on the Bond theme. John Barry, who's the composer of Note for all of those films, is my favorite. He's I don't I don't know why how much it's like chicken or the egg with the Bond movies that I love yeah. the, all of these people. Is it because of what they did or because I watched so much of it I started to love what they do? But So he's the one we're thinking of? I assume. Yes. Da -da, yeah. da -da. Although cool. he did not <laughs> write the original Bond theme. It was ah. another guy named Monty Norman who took it from a musical he wrote about it, like an Indian family, and it was like originally oh. just I who was born with this unlucky sneeze. And that was the original melody that he turned into the Bond theme. <laughs> what? And John Barry orchestrated it to the cool version that you yes. have today. But then they had a whole lawsuit about who actually wrote what in that. And it, it went to Monty Norman, but Barry conducted and orchestrated gotcha. and arranged it. But yeah. he's also responsible for everything else and just that cool spy sound that came out of there. And his melodies are so amazing. And I feel like today, everything's that oh, driving Hans Zimmer. Da -na 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 -na. There's no surf get, rock influence anymore. But, yeah. But, <laughs> see, I think that's the, the common misconception about him is he's not, he had that surf rock sound, but his melodies are so beautiful and cinematic. Oh, and yeah, I, I and symphonic. It. But yeah. I'm just saying there is a surf rock sensibility in like the bass line. Definitely. Then everyone seems like embarrassed to do anymore. Or like uh, yeah. surf rock and big band influence. Yeah. And you don't, Everyone's now much more like, yeah, techno. Yeah. I do miss I do big too. band sounds and the, the guy while people that was, are murdering each other. <laughs> the guy that was doing um, the Daniel Craig films, David Arnold, was doing that. In fact, John Barry suggested he should follow him. And he was very oh, cool. melodic. But when Sam Mendes came along, he brought Thomas Newman with him, who I otherwise like, but his Bond films are very typical of today and I, I don't know they're not but he he did yeah. the six feet under theme right is that thomas newman i don't know because his other stuff is really melodic he also did road to perdition which is just yeah beautiful. i think that it's who i'm thinking of he does a lot of themes that sound like quirky like we're thinking now right Kinda, like, yeah dee, 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 some of dee, yeah dee. but he can get really beautiful too and um but i miss just having sweeping lush emotional scores in even like gritty action movies you know i wonder when yeah. that will come back because when you emailed that, like, oh, John Barry might be one, and I looked him up, but he won five Oscars for not Bond Yeah, stuff. yeah. Like, what, he's like such Africa a product, and prolific, and he won two of them for Born Free, the, right. the score, and then the song Born Free. He won for Out of Africa, Mary Queen of Scots, and The Lion in Winter. So he's worked, like, all the time on a whole period of movies yeah. on top of doing all the famous James That's Bond right. stuff. Yeah, he did it's Dances amazing. with Wolves and the Black Hole. That Do you know that Black Hole thing, that really repetitious Black Hole theme? It's so, it's ironic. It's almost like a proto Hans Zimmer thing <laughs> yeah. now that I think of it. <laughs> but it's still way more memorable because Hans Zimmer's are always just kind of like one or two notes kind of. <laughs> 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 yeah. Right. Yeah. Like it is effective. Like a, a Batman though. theme. The I don't mind Batman me a Hans Zimmer theme, though. It's effective. You're never to listen to on its own, but as. 
carpeting. Yeah. It works. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I do miss bold choices. Like the Bond theme is so strongly melodic. It's like, listen to me. I'm yes. a song. Yes. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. And he would work with the artists who would do the title songs. So these pop songs would have elements of his oh, orchestration really? in them that would then the song melody would reappear in the film and it would all be connected nowadays it's like we got to get an artist we got to get a composer and they rarely yeah. meet there'll be a couple of little or quotes, it's a curated playlist of great songs yeah. like yeah. Garden State or Suicide right. Squad yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that, that influence being on the themes makes total sense to me because like when Adele did the Skyfall one and it felt like a throwback to me in a really good way I was like oh right it's because it has all those sweeping things yes, that we yeah. don't do in movies anymore and that was one yeah. that I think they finished late and Thomas Newman had already done the score because I actually somehow got an advanced copy of the soundtrack and there was no no Skyfall theme song in there at all and then when you oh. see the movie when he's going into the casino they weave that theme in so he must have gone back in and put a little bit of that in which yeah I'm glad he, did. he also did nice. Spectre uh, yeah. and in case people are wondering uh, what Thomas Newman sounds like uh, Meet Joe Black American Beauty The Green Mile Aaron Brockovich Pay It Forward Six Feet Under Finding Nemo all those themes yeah, I wish him well, but I don't know the themes to any of those yeah, movies yeah. at all. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, you know what I mean? Them, like I've seen them. And I do them. wish you well, Thomas. Yeah, yeah. I, I really well. like him. <laughs> I would call them plinky. Yeah. It's, they're hard to describe his sound, but he <laughs> has... The tradition is beautiful. He has a specific yeah, yeah. sound, and I like it a lot. I really like Thomas Newman, but yeah. I will admit, it's certainly not as catchy as, like, your Bond theme. Well, Matt, thank you so much <laughs> yeah, for being thank here. thank you for being on the show. I That's great. I love this. I will talk this nerdy shit with you. Talking time. heroes, yeah. 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 Well, uh, speaking of James Bond, uh, I have a podcast called James Bonding that has been Woo. lying dormant for a long time, but we are yeah. bringing it back for oh. a year, week oh. by week. So there'll be uh, 50 or so episodes, Wow, Matt, Myra, and I, uh, discussing all the Bond films again with uh, episodes in between where we talk about, you know, the best Bond scores, the best Bond gadgets or whatever, you know, nothing too surprising, yeah. but if you have ever listened to it, it'll be a return. But I'm, it's the return. That's exciting. Yeah, yeah. I'm learning this in the room. I'm thrilled. Yes, I know. It's awesome. We haven't great. told anybody, so yeah. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because you guys did like a special Spectre thing, and I, I yeah. was like, yeah. oh, maybe they'll yeah. come back for the next one. But and with the passing back. of Roger Moore, we're going to begin with uh, an episode dedicated to Roger Moore. We'll great. talk all about him. Lovely. Yeah. Oh, man. This is so great. <laughs> great. Thanks <laughs> well, for having me. We'll see you guys. next time. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Folks, that's the episode for this week. My thanks to Michael Swaim and to Matt Gorley. They are the best of us. Let's segue to footnotes. This week's footnote section is loaded with material you're going to love about everyone from Ben Burt, the sound master, to John Barry, the music master. Still sound. Anyway, it's so loaded I'm not even going to read it all to you. Check the description and enjoy. Also, our next live episode of this show, The Cracked Podcast, is happening this Saturday, July 8th at 7 p.m. at UCB Sunset in Los Angeles. Our topic will be animals that could conquer Earth, Planet of the Apes style, if they wanted to. We've got a stacked lineup of Cracked's Daniel O'Brien and Katie Golden, plus our three favorite comedians, Caitlin Gill, Joey Clift, and Matt Kirshen. Go to sunset.ucbtheater.com for more, or check out the Cracked social media feeds and you can find ticket links there as well. If you loved this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media, the platform where human beings send other human beings mean emojis. Find me on Twitter under the name at Alex I'm also on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. And our super engineer, Brett Rader, is at Brett, R-A-D-E-R, on Twitter. Our special guest, Matt Gourley, is at Matt, G-O-U-R-L-E-Y. 
which is Gourley, and hear him on all sorts of podcasts, including, as he said, the dramatic return of James Bonding. It makes the theme song play in my head. I couldn't be more excited. Anyway, thank you for listening, and we'll be back at it next week with more podcasts. How about that? Talk to you then. I'm Matt Gourley, and on my show, I Was There Too, I interview actors who are on set for some of the greatest films ever made. You'll hear stories from the sets of Star Wars. There is a great disturbance in the Force. The Shawshank Redemption. It was singularly the worst audition I ever gave. And Back to the Future. This isn't just a bullet cafe. Mm. Something bad is happening. Subscribe to I Was There Too on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.